right, so as usual, I want to start off with a question. I think questions are a good way to reframe our minds and kind of slowly launch into this. So I'll ask you, simple, who do you look up to? As a kid growing up, and maybe you kids, you can, you can kind of join me in this, I essentially idolize effectively every professional baseball player alive. To the point where when I met one, and this might be your case too, I was rendered speechless. I couldn't say a word. I just sat down and, and looked stupid. Filled with fear at the prospect of opening my mouth and saying something dumb. Though this is less the case today, I kind of still get starstruck. And you might look up to theologians, you might look up to various pastors, you might look up to sports stars, whatever, whoever it is. And maybe even those talking heads you listen to who bash effectively everything in existence that they don't like. I bet if you were to meet one, you might be a little fear-filled yourself. You're, you're not scared so much, you're, you're nervous. Your nerves kind of get the best of you. And you begin thinking, like I do, what am I going to say? Will they like me as much as I like them? Am I going to sound like I like them too much? Now think about meeting Jesus for the first time. Really, like actually think about it. What do you normally think about doing the first time you meet him? Because I bet you've thought this. I bet you'd want to ask him questions you never got answered here on earth. Or especially for our, I'll call them, polemically-minded brothers and sisters who like debating. You likely begin, Jesus, tell me who was right, and insert your debates, because you really want to know. Beating Jesus can turn into an attempt at proving yourself right, not so much worshiping him. And in John 6, when the disciples see Jesus walking on water, and the Sea of Galilee without aid of a boat below him, they fear him more than the storm. This crazy storm, like, you're a lot scarier than this storm that we are about to die in. Capsizing seemed easier to digest for the disciples than meeting the thrice holy God. And as Job, we're going to see what Job has to do with today's passage, when he met Yahweh in the whirlwind, the disciples get the same thing. They meet Yahweh in the storm. And this comes right after Jesus fulfills the feast of Passover. That's the previous passage to this. Proclaiming the things over the bread. We get that at the end of this passage again. And identifying himself as Yahweh. And this is sandwiched with the bread of life discourse. And so this little passage has something to say about both of these. John is emphasizing over and over and over again, Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. That's what all these stories have to do with. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. So we'll see this first by crossing the sea. And I use that very specifically, verses 16 to 18. The 12 disciples embark on a boat surrounded by angry waters, which might sound like something to you. Second is the Lord who parts the sea, verses 19 to 21. Jesus walks on the sea to lead the disciples out. So again, there's more themes in this than just walking on sea. 
And thirdly, lastly, following him through the sea. Verses 22 to 24. And I love how John ends this. The crowd can't find any earthly way how Jesus just did what he did. Traveling through the water. Like, you don't have a boat. How did you get on the water? With the question, are you with Jesus in the boat of salvation? Or are you outside of the boat drowning? And so the gospel, I think, is fairly simple in this. And I hope you hear this throughout. Jesus is the way through the dark and treacherous waters of your sin. So we'll begin with point one, crossing the sea. And we'll start with where it starts in verse 16. So if you look at your Bibles at verse 16, if you remember the beginning of our time in the Gospel of John, what is the first contrast, so this versus this, that he sets in the Gospel of John? He sets lights versus dark. The first contrast, the first two things between holiness and sin So when John begins the narrative of Jesus walking on water, what does he first say? It was evening, and he goes later on to say something different and and more, like he did with Nicodemus. That's the last time we heard, and it was evening before he met somebody. So we're kind of thinking, this is is kind of the same situation when Jesus met Nicodemus. Because John is all about connections. He doesn't tell you, but he shows you. If you know anything about the Jews, did they like the sea? Did anything good happen with Jews in the sea? Ever. Like, by themselves. It was never a good situation with them in the sea. But that's what they're going into. If you know your Old Testament well, they don't get along with water. They're not called seafaring people. The Philistines are called seafaring people, but the Philistines and the Jews don't get along together. John doesn't set up a narrative around the water. There are many narratives around the water. So when he does, you should pay attention. Why is he doing this? In verse 17, the file into the boat to journey through, or they file into the boat to journey through these waters to get to their destination, which is verse 25. This is how they get there. But hold on a second. As you've heard, Everything John says is important. There's no throwaway words in the Gospels. There's nothing, he doesn't just say something to say something. He says something that you need to know. It's not a simple excursion because technically, this is what the crowds do. They can walk around the sea. It's not a big deal for them. It's not a huge sea. They can walk around the sea because that's exactly what the crowds do. That's how they meet the crowds in verse 25. It's a little longer to go across by foot than the sea. But sailing by nights, it was evening, and that's when they start sailing. Anyone who's got sea legs, or maybe doesn't have sea legs, and you go on a boat, boating at night is not really that fun. Especially with a small boat that's self-powered, and you've got no lights. They don't have all the modern stuff that we have today that makes boating at night or anything at night a lot easier. They can't see where they're going. It's pitch black. John strengthens the night imagery for it was evening and verse 17, and now it's dark. Again, he's contrasting these things. This is not a good thing that's about to happen. 
You've got a way to counteract the nights. You do. Because what can you do to push off the blanket of darkness? You can flip on a light. If you have a boat, I don't have a boat, but maybe you have a boat, or you've been on a boat. You can turn on the light in your boat. It's a little less dark around you. They don't have lights. They're in pitch black. They might have the stars above them, but they don't really have light pollution like we have light pollution. just means like there's really no true darkness here. For them, it's they, they can't see anything, and they're in dark. And John also makes a point to inform you that Jesus is not with them. He says it, and Jesus was not with them. They leave without their rabbi, without their teacher. You don't do this if you're, if you're a Jew with a rabbi. You don't do this without a teacher. Literally everywhere your rabbi goes, you go. There's not a situation. If he goes to the bathroom, you go to the bathroom. If he goes to bed, you go to bed. They're all on their own. Without their rabbi, without their leader, without Jesus, they're boating the darkness of the Sea of Galilee. And then a storm strikes. It's bad enough that they're in dark. But then a storm strikes. Can you imagine? You've got nothing that you have now. There's no lights. They're self-powered. It's a tiny little boat. And then a huge storm strikes. It's not a well-protected boat. They're not covered. And they're not fans of the water. Everything that could go wrong is, is going wrong in this. And the storm whipped up the sea, making boating difficult. The tempest was blowing the boat, causing waves all around them, not too terribly different from two Old Testament stories that you know. In the days of Noah, eight people in the covenant line with Noah were given refuge in the ark. It's, it's basically the same imagery. That the, the, the heavens flow down with water, the springs open up, there's a storm all around them, and they're a little boat floating through this. Those in the ark traverse through the waters of death surrounding, because God is destroying the land. God is destroying the people for their sin. When the heavens open up and dump prodigi- prodigious amounts of rain, it's, it's the same situation. There's a storm around them. After the crossing of the Red Sea with Moses, when Israel is led by the pillars of fire, the same way they get the pillars of, or the, the pillars, the two, the two sides are flanked by water, it's described the exact same way as this. There's a strong east wind that comes in and separates the water. So now the strong east wind is coming in to cause the waters here to tremble. It's likely John, he's, he's pulling both of these images together and saying, this is what Jesus, this is, what, this is what the situation they're in. There's death all around them. This sounds like Noah. This sounds like Moses. But they have no presence of God with them. Versus Noah and Moses, Moses has the two pillars pushing through the Red Sea. And Noah has the promise of God in that ark. Told him to bring this ark. But you have to ask of the disciples, where's Jesus? They don't have him with them. The disciples are caught in the midst of the storm with nothing but a boat and waves crashing in and the wind tempting to overturn them. Who's going to deliver them? This brings us to point two. The Lord who parts the sea. And the disciples, they're really far into sea. This is not next to the shore. This is not shallow waters. 
by all measures, three to four miles into the Sea of Galilee is about halfway in. That's the center into the center of the Sea of Galilee as you can possibly get. And they see something out in the distance. First off, like I said, there's three or four miles. They're really far from shore. This is not, this is not shallow water. This is deep water. And so when they see a person coming over, the first reaction is, where is your boat? You can't go on this water on your own. Uh, they can't radio anybody because radios aren't invented for about 1,900 years. They can't see anybody, and they probably don't have a great idea of where they're going. Because, again, it's pitch black, and none of them are sailors. They're fishermen, but they're not really sailors. So they're disoriented, they're scared, they're fearful, and they're likely thinking, this is how it ends. This is how all of us die. Our, our ship is about to capsize. Philistines are sea people. They're called sea people if they're not called Philistines. Israelites are not sea people. They're land people. But off in the distance, what do they see in a boat? Or they don't see a boat. What do they see? Both Matthew and Mark, they have a, an account of this. This is another one of the stories where all four Gospels have this. Slightly different. Matthew and Mark, when they recount Jesus walking on water, they recount this miracle in their Gospels describing what the disciples see as a ghost. And you might scoff, but you would think exactly the same thing. I guarantee you, you would think, if this happened to you today, you were three miles off the coast, you would think exactly the same thing if there is no boat. But all four Gospels accounts, as John is doing, he's pulling imagery. Because this actually has an Old Testament correspondent. This has an Old Testament forebearer. And this is Job 9, verses 8 through 11. Job describes essentially this, this imagery. He describes the omnipotence of Yahweh, his creativity and providential control over all things. And Job 9, 8 says this. He who stretches out the heavens by himself and who treads upon the waves of the sea. The Greek version of the Old Testament translates this treads, the same verb that's used for Jesus walking on water. He's seeing what Job saw. He's seeing Yahweh walk on the water. When disciples look out, John wants to bring Yahweh to the forefront. He's like, that's Yahweh. Yahweh's over the water. Yahweh's walking on the waves of the sea. And that's Jesus identifying, just like he did with the feeding of the 5,000, when the only one who blesses the bread in the Passover, only one, is the Lord. Jesus blesses it. And now in this, Jesus is walking on water because that's what Job said he would do. Job said Yahweh would walk on water. Now Jesus is walking on water. It's not who do they fear. I mean, really, are they, are they thankful they see Jesus? They're like, thank God you're here. You're going to save us. This storm is crazy. Come on in here. We're good now. We don't fear anything. The storm capsizing, stranding in the middle of the sea. These all take a back seat. Now they see the glory of Yahweh. Like, that's a lot scarier than the sea. 
They worry not about asking him questions, not like, why are we in the middle of the sea? They're struck dumb with fear. They're more scared of Jesus in his holiness than they are of the sea. And this is not the felt bored moralistic Jesus come down to calm the storms of your life. Because he says, I'm scarier than the storms of your life. I'm bigger than the storms of your life. He controls the storm. Again, he created the world. This is John 1. Through his word, through him, he creates the world. So he brought this on. He controls it, and he brought it on the disciples to reveal his glory. I'm bringing this storm so you see me walking on waters, because you should remember Job. Because Job said, I would walk on these, and now I am. He, re- he redirects your gaze in the midst of the storm and says, don't look at the storm. He says, look at me. Not just the fine answers. Don't ask me for answers. They're not, they're not wondering, Lord, why would you bring this upon us? They don't ask him to calm the storm. He says, you want me. You want me more than the storm. And what is Jesus' response in verse 20? He takes Yahweh's self-attestation. It's, it's what Yahweh names himself. It is I, as the Greek translates, the translation of the Greek for the same thing that he says in Exodus 3 to Moses. Moses says, who, who, who am I going to say has sent me to deliver my people? Because I am who I am. That's what Jesus takes on his mouth. At that moment, they realize Yahweh speaking to us. That's why they're afraid. They're, they're not afraid of the this, this storm anymore. They're afraid of Yahweh. The fear of the storm vanishes because they're in the presence of Yahweh, the guy who controls this. And notice what John doesn't include because the other Gospels do include this. He doesn't calm the sea in John 6. He doesn't call out to the waters and say, be calm, and they're calm. He doesn't do that in John 6. He does in the other gospel accounts. Doesn't mean that John's being unfaithful. Doesn't mean he's contradicting. Doesn't mean he misheard what the witnesses said when they're writing down the story. Or he's contradicting. He's under the same divine inspiration of the Spirit, so he's not lying and he's not contradicting. He's not taking things out. What he's doing is he's making a point. He's redirecting your gaze upon Jesus because that doesn't nullify the storm. Reorients you. Fear doesn't melt away in his presence. It's recentered on him. He doesn't calm the storm. He doesn't include that because it's trying to show us Yahweh's glory. He is the Yahweh, the Lord in the flesh, who guided the same ark of safety that Noah was in and his people to the waters of judgments. And his family aboard. And he's the same Yahweh, the two pillars of fire leading his people through the Red Sea, through the walls of watery judgment again, that are parted by the strong east wind. That eventually deluged and killed Pharaoh's hosts who were pursuing his people. By Jesus walking in water, he said, I'm the guy who did that. I parted the waters. I was with them in the ark. I guided them in the ark. I guided them through the waters. And now I'm guiding you. I'm in your boat. I'm with you. 
from verse 21, the second Jesus reveals himself, the second he reveals himself, what happens to their boat? doesn't say they traveled. It just says immediately they're on the land. Quoting from verse 21, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The second Jesus walks in, they're saved. doesn't have to navigate the waters. doesn't have to navigate with this. The second he's with them, they're saved. They're out of this watery judgments onto the land. He delivers them to safety. Again, what John doesn't include is not by calming the waters. Other gospels include it because they're making a different points. Not a contradictory points, but a different points. And John's making this because he's not calming the seas because that's not what delivers them. Calm seas don't deliver you. You can still drown in seas that are calm. Doesn't mean it delivers you. He's making one point and one point only. He's saying Jesus delivers. Jesus brings you through. Because Jesus said again and again that he is Yahweh in the flesh, delivering those found in him. Are you found in him? Are you in the same boat? This brings us to our last points, following him through the sea. I love, I love how John ends this. Because he ends it kind of practically, kind of apologetically. He transitions to the bread of life discourse because he has a crowd standing in the opposite where they're going toward, where they come from, not where they're going towards. On the opposite of the sea, meaning the crowd walked. The disciples went through the sea, the crowd walked around. And notice the crowd does, there's only one boat on the shore. And they do some quick and easy math and they, they say, how did Jesus cross the sea? That's, that's what they're asking. There's, there's one boat, the disciples took it, Jesus went to, we didn't see him in that boat. How did he get across the sea? And going further in this direction of thought, verse 23, they notice other boats from Tiberias, which is the local name for Galilee. They had crossed the sea, and Jesus was not in those either. They're probably trading boats. Not really boats that you go across the sea for travel, they're for trade. Did you catch what they say at the end? Other boats, in verse 23, from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread of the Lord, or after the Lord, had given thanks. They recognize Jesus. The crowd does. They're actually dead on with the prophet. Because that's exactly what Moses said. A prophet after me who's coming. And these are the same people who are present at the Passover. They're, they follow him. They notice him. You're at the Passover feast. You bless us. That's what Yahweh does. I think you're a prophet after Moses. They don't get everything right, but they get the core right. And disciples who saw Jesus traversing the waters on foot, they're not hallucinating. They don't hear they're hallucinating. They're thinking things. They're too hungry. Nor were they deliriously hungry that they imagined things. Because they just they'd just been fed. That's that's a previous one to this. They'd just been fed enough, now they go on to the sea. Neither are they really particularly excited at seeing Jesus. Because he's a lot scarier than the sea. It's a lot scarier than the storm. They're not trying to make up fake stories. John describes this boat situation by the Sea of Tiberias 
Because there is no way Jesus could have fooled the disciples or the crowds into thinking he was walking on water. He's in the middle of the sea. That's really deep. If you're by the shore, you can kind of fool people that you're just walking on water. Can't fool them in the middle of the sea. And John's not spiritualizing this text to make a grander point. He's not saying, like, he walked on water, but he really didn't. But says you have to deal, you have to deal with this Jesus. You have to deal with the Jesus who does Yahweh things, who takes on Yahweh's properties, who takes on Yahweh's divinity. You have to deal with that Jesus. Not a moralistic Jesus, not a Jesus you made up. You have to deal with just this Jesus. And the crowd was confused because they knew Jesus went with his disciples, but not in the same boat. So they're asking, how on earth did Jesus cross? That's what the end of this is for. How did he cross? Didn't cross on a boat. It's not fanciful storytelling because those who heard the first gospel, when they heard this, probably 10 or 15 years after it was written, they know the crowd. They probably had friends in the crowd who were at Passover. They could have talked to their friends who saw Jesus and said, did Jesus really do this? And they said, yeah, he did. Doesn't hide his story from public view. He tells you, he says, go check my sources. So the crowd goes searching for Jesus in verse 24. The prophet whom they've been waiting for, who fulfilled the Passover and delivers the disciples from the stormy waters of the sea by revealing himself as Yahweh in the flesh. That's the Jesus you deal with. I'll ask you one question to conclude. Do you trust in that Jesus? And what will you do with this Jesus? You can't explain away his miracles. John backs it up. And make no mistake, the, the boat the disciples were in as the storm hit is the boat you want to be in. You want to be in their boat. You need this deliverance the disciples experienced, the deliverance of Jesus, the Lord in the flesh. This world, your life, is rocked by storms. But not the storms outside of you, though there are storms outside of you. It's the storm within you. That's the storm you need to be delivered from. The storm you created, the storm that you conjure up, that you feed within you, that's the storm that needs to be not just calmed, but delivered. The storm that makes the boat necessary. There's no storm. You can swim through this, but you can't swim through this. You can't do this on your own. You might look at Jesus and think, well, what a great guy. Had a, had a few clever quips, some quotable statements, some good verses, some good moral statements, decent morals, but that's about it. Tell me how to live a better life. But ultimately, you might be saying, I don't, I don't really need him. I can swim. These waters aren't that bad. I'm, I'm a great swimmer. I can navigate these waters. I can navigate these seas. And you'll hear this. He who does not rely on himself is weak. Well, that's, the, that's the key to destruction. So I say trust in Jesus. Trust in, trust in this Jesus. Doesn't get rid of your storm. That's not the point of this. It's not getting rid of your storm. He doesn't promise deliverance from worldly cares. doesn't promise deliverance from worldly storms. That's not what he promises. doesn't promise to get rid of the earthly consequences of your sin because you're going to have to deal with those. 
But what he does promise is far better. If you trust in him, you have the sovereign of and over the universe as your representative, the one in your boat. That's who you get, and that's a lot better. What Noah's ark prefigured, what the pillars of cloud were, Jesus is. And he says, trust in me. You have the great I am with you, going before you who has delivered you. Not just will deliver you, but has delivered you. You are delivered in him. Just like them, the second Jesus comes into the boat, they're delivered. They don't have to wait. They're delivered. You've crossed the condemnation of your sin, not by walking around it, not by trying to skirt around it, trying to do your own thing. You've crossed it by going through it. That's how you get through your sin. By Jesus taking your sin upon himself and giving you himself. You don't just get his benefits, you get him. You get him with you. Jesus is yours. And that's what this is about. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our deliverance. We thank you. We are, we are thankful that you've delivered us, <coughs> not by going around, but Lord, by, by going right through. You take this upon yourself. You, you take us under your wings. You take us through the deluge of our sins, the waters of our sins, the night of our sins, and you deliver us through them by taking them on yourself and by giving us yourself, your credited righteousness. We get this. And that is how we go through this life. Not by calming everything around us, but having the calming spirit of you within us. Lord, we thank you. We praise you all this in your son's name. Amen.